0: Please uh, turn with me to the first chapter of Acts, and we will read the first 11 verses of this uh, second of Luke's books, interesting little piece of factual information. Luke was a Gentile, interesting thing that he was a Gentile. As a Gentile, he gets more ink in the New Testament than anybody else. Don't you find that cool? I like that. Let's read together. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. We thank him for it. Let's pray for his presence so that we can understand it. Father, thank you um, again for this day. Thank you for this first day of the week, this day of resurrection. Uh, But thank you that the story doesn't end with the resurrection. It continues with, Lord Jesus, your ascension, and your being seated at the right hand of your Father, and then you together with the Father pouring out this Holy Spirit upon the church. Be with us as we think about these things. May we be changed by the majesty and wonder of them. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This is uh, Pentecost Sunday um, all over the world, throughout the church, various places. People are uh, recognizing this day, Pentecost Sunday, the day when the Father and the Son fulfill the promise that the Father had made that the Spirit would be poured out upon the church Ten days ago, uh, in many places, someday I hope in this place, uh, Ascension Day services were observed. Uh, The ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father uh, is another uh, act in the unfolding drama of the redemption of the world by Jesus Christ according to the purpose of God, Ascension Day, and Pentecost. Let me just suggest to you, if if we don't have these two days, if we don't have Ascension, and if we don't have Pentecost, the story is incomplete. And let me suggest a further thing. If we don't have Ascension, and if we don't have Pentecost, we really don't know who we are as a church. And we really don't know what it is that we're about as the people of God. Unfortunately, Ascension and Pentecost don't get the kind of press. They don't get the kind of attention. They don't get the the ink, if you will, that they really warrant. So I want to think about these things for this little bit of time before we come to the Lord's table. I want us to think about Ascension. I want us to think about Pentecost and, and hopefully, by God's grace, have the significance of these two events, Ascension and Pentecost, enlarged for us. And I'd like to do it by asking three questions. Where is Jesus anyway? Where is Jesus? Where did he go? You ever wonder that? Where is Jesus? Where did he go? And what is he doing? What is he doing? I mean just I mean a lot of us sort of have this, this idea that Jesus was God and he became a human being, and then he was a human being, and he became God again. right? Like this, this parenthesis in the midst of eternity, and he was God and he became man and he was man for a while and he became God Well. I think we're going to see, I hope we're going to see anyway, that that's not the case. What is he doing right now? What is Jesus up to? And then the third thing is what difference does it make? Where did he go? What is he doing? And what difference does it make for us? First of all, where did he go? Verse 9 of Acts chapter 1 tells us that he was lifted up in their presence he was lifted up, the disciples saw him physically, materially, bodily, lifted up. We could spend a whole lot of time trying to, trying to press home and reinforce this idea that on the day of resurrection, some seven weeks before Pentecost uh, and, and some 40 days before the ascension, On the day of the resurrection, what came out of that tomb was glorified humanity. Real, true, glorified, but real and true, material, flesh and bone and blood. Francis Schaeffer used to say, if you had been there, you could have taken a picture of it. And the Jesus who came out of the tomb, as the text tells us, for the next 40 or so days before his ascension, interacted with his disciples and talked with them over and over and over again and talked with them about the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 3 of the text? He demonstrated that he was alive by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's not at all surprising in verse 6, given what Jesus has been talking about for nearly six weeks with his disciples, it's not surprising that they would ask him the question that they asked. Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Their conversations have been about the kingdom. So it's not surprising that they would ask that question. That's what they've talked about. And at the end of this 40-day period of time, the Jesus who came out of the tomb, fully God, fully man, not any less God than He was before, not any less man than He was before, Jesus, fully God and fully man, with the same humanity, the same body, though glorified, in which he suffered, that Jesus was lifted up in their presence and taken up into a cloud. That's verse 9. Taken up out of their sight. Now here's what we tend to think when we read this passage, this ninth verse. We tend to think of the ascension and the ascent of Jesus And his disappearing into this cloud in the way you think of a little helium balloon that you buy at the carnival. Right? You go to the carnival, you buy your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter a little helium balloon. And you walk around the carnival and you buy some cotton candy or you do something else. And and suddenly there's a moment of inattention, right? And the helium balloon escapes the grasp. Of the little child. And you stand there. Watching the helium balloon. Get smaller and smaller and smaller. And smaller and smaller. Until suddenly it. What? Vanishes. It disappears. Into the clouds. That's how we tend to think of the ascension of Jesus. But that's really not. Not. What the ascension of Jesus is about. And the key to understanding what is going on in this passage is in fact the cloud. The cloud into which Jesus was taken, which resulted in his disappearing from the sight of his disciples, is not like these big cumulonimbus clouds that, that pass their way over Florida and hopefully soon dump some precipitation on this drought-stricken central Florida. They're not like the big puffy cumulus clouds that you see floating across the sky. This is a different cloud. And it's a fascinating thing to trace the story of the cloud across the pages of Scripture. This, you know, this is one of those things you just, you know, you wish, this is kind of a beam me up Scotty kind of a thing. You know, you wish that Scotty could sort of beam you up into the glory cloud because words fail to convey the significance of what this cloud is. This is the cloud that veils from our seeing the glory of the infinite and eternal and unapproachable God. This is his clothing. This is what he is draped in. This is the cloud in Exodus 15 that moved from over the nation to behind the nation as the Egyptian army approached. It's the cloud of glory that protected the nation from being consumed by the Egyptian army. This is the cloud that came down upon the mountain in Exodus 19 the cloud which Moses went up into along with Joshua and the other elders, but which no one else from the nation could go up into. It's the cloud occupied by the presence of the living God which causes the earth to quake and the mountain to tremble, filled with lightning and a voice that is so thunderous that when Moses comes back down from the mountain, the people plead with him that he cover his face, because his face gives this fading expression of the glory which he has seen. It's the cloud that follows the people through the wilderness, protecting them from the heat of the day, and protecting them, keeping them warm in the midst of the cold, night, desert air. The cloud is the presence of God that enfolds, protects and defends the people of God. It's the cloud that becomes smoke. In Exodus, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is given a vision of the glory of God seated upon his throne, But that glory is veiled by this curtain of smoke. Why? Because if Isaiah, the sinner, were to behold God in all of his glory, he would be consumed. He would be destroyed. He would be toast, burnt to a crisp. This is the cloud that settles upon the Mount of Transfiguration the cloud that engulfs Peter and James and John, the cloud that engulfs Jesus, the cloud that engulfs Moses and Elijah as they are talking with Jesus about his departure, his exodus, which he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And it is from that cloud that the voice speaks and says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the cloud that the Apostle Paul is referring to in 1 Thessalonians 4. This passage of extraordinary comfort for Christians in every decade, in every generation, in every century. This passage that speaks to the griefs that so many of us have experienced in our lives when losing someone we love. That's what the Thessalonians were. They were believers who had suffered, had suffered the indignity, the brutal, heartbreaking indignity of death. And Paul writes to them and says, "We don't want you to be uninformed." This is 1 Thessalonians 4:13. "We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, whose bodies now lying at rest in the grave. We don't want you to be uninformed so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope." with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Not cumulonimbus. Not cumulus. The glory cloud. The cloud that enshrines God in all of his glory and into which Jesus was transferred at his ascension. The glory cloud is the manifestation of the presence of the invisible God. Here's the thing to keep in mind. When the invisible God makes his appearance in the seen world, he is robed in this cloud. Did you get that? When this unseen God manifests his presence in the midst of the seen world, he is robed in this glory cloud. Which is to say, when the God of glory crosses the veil that separates the seen from the unseen, he manifests himself as robed in this glory cloud. There are two aspects to reality, folks. There is what you are sitting on, what you are looking at, what you hear and smell and taste, and there is what you do not see. And what you do not see is every bit as real as what it is that you do see. Science doesn't get this. The modern world doesn't get this. Modern science, the modern world has no room for the wonder of mystery and glory and the unseen. When the unseen God crosses the veil that separates the unseen from the seen, he manifests himself as robed in this cloud of glory. So what happened at the ascension? Jesus, I mean no offense, Jesus didn't go up. Jesus went through. When Jesus ascended, I mean if you think about it, If you think about this little globe spinning in the vastness of this space, the exact dimensions of which the brightest, most brilliant astrophysicists cannot calculate. You think of this little planet spinning in the midst of this vast space. Which way is up? He didn't go up. He didn't go down. He didn't go sideways. He went Across the veil, the cloud of glory came and got him and took him back into what, what one author calls God's space. There is our space, space and time, physical, material. And then there is the unseen realm, God's space, and God's space encompasses, permeates, and enfolds the totality of our space. And the day is coming, and this is the hope that we have. The day is coming when the veil falls down. And what is now divided will be reunited. And God will be beheld In all of his glory. When Jesus went up, he really went through. He went over. He crossed onto the other side of that veil. Where is Jesus? Jesus doesn't leave here and go to some very remote and distant place, he doesn't cross some line way out there where the material, the spatial, the physical suddenly, mysteriously becomes the non-material, the non-physical, the non-spatial. He crossed over the veil that separates these two realities. Where is Jesus? Jesus is here. He is here. There is a wonderful passage, Philippians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul writes to these Philippian believers, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I will guarantee you that 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of us in this room Read that phrase, the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near, and connect it to chronology, connect it to the sequence of moments, connect it to the return of Jesus. Don't be anxious. The Lord is returning. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. I don't believe that's what the apostle is saying. I believe what the Apostle is saying because the word can be interpreted either way, but in this case, I believe it's right to interpret it not in terms of succession of moments, not in terms of chronology, but in terms of proximity. The Lord is at hand. He is near to his people. And so you don't have to be anxious about anything. He's not out there. He is here just across the veil. And so, don't be anxious. But in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Where did Jesus go? He simply crossed the veil. He is here, He is near, unseen to us, but present on the other side of that veil. It's very interesting that about half the time, this is important, about half the time in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers refer to the return of Jesus, they use the word appearing. His appearing. Don't you love that? John does it in his first letter. Ah, oh, gee. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. When he appears, when the veil falls, what happens is your complete and entire perfection, and you, conform to his image, will see him as he is. That happens when he appears. So where did Jesus go? There's a sense in which he didn't go anywhere. He just crossed the veil. And here's the other thing. What is he doing? This answers the question, what is he doing? Here's what he's doing. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is subduing his enemies under his feet. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is subduing his enemies under his feet. That's what he's doing right now as the king of glory. This language of Acts chapter 1 is taken from Daniel chapter 7. It amazes me. I mean, it amazes me about myself. It amazes me really about all of us. It amazes me that we can read our Bibles without reading our Bibles. (laughs) I mean, it does. It amazes me that I can read my Bible and not let the Bible be the book that interprets the Bible. So I come up with all these crazy harebrained notions about what it is that's going on in this passage or that passage or the other passage, when if I would just read my Bible a little bit more closely, I wouldn't come up with these crazy and harebrained notions. Daniel chapter 7, a commentator pointed this out to me recently, just never made the connection between Acts chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 7. Let me read the passage. And just make a couple of comments. Daniel 7, beginning at verse 7. After this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking seeking great things let me just tell you what this is this is the kingdoms of the world That's what the fourth beast is. The kingdoms of the world. The the arrogant kingdoms of the world. This is the kings of the earth who rather than coming to serve people come so that people will serve them. You want to know what the difference between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of Jesus is? Look at the kingdoms of the world. The kings all require of you that you serve them. In the kingdom of King Jesus Jesus serves you. The kings of this world bite and crush and devour. But there is another king who comes not to take life, but to give it and to give it freely. That's a picture of the kingdoms of the world. And in that context, in that setting, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books We're open. What do you suppose is happening? The Ancient of Days is judging the kingdoms of this world. And in that setting, we read this. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with The clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Did you hear that? The clouds of heaven and one like a son of man who approaches the ancient of days and who is given dominion and power and authority. My friends, when the disciples saw Jesus gathered up into that cloud, at some point they connected the dots and they understood that Jesus was being enthroned. That he was fulfilling Daniel 7 and was being given dominion and authority, and power, and a kingdom that will never end. Now, the disciples are looking up into heaven. They're wondering what is going on. Angels stand next to them, and they say to the disciples, what are you doing? Why are you looking up into heaven? Don't you see what's just happened? The king has taken his throne. Dominion has been given to him. Power and authority have been given to him. Get on with the business of bringing the nations to him that they might bow before him. Get on with it. Go to Jerusalem and Judea. Go to Samaria. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth and fulfill Daniel 7. The bringing of... Of the nations to the crown prince of glory who is now enthroned. If you're waiting for the kingdom of King Jesus, stop it. It's here. If you're waiting for its completion and its perfection, praise Jesus. The king is enthroned. The king is ruling and reigning. And the king is subduing his nation's subduing his enemies under his feet and is gathering the nations to himself. There's a great passage, Matthew 26, verse 64. Got to do this quickly. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Matthew 26, verse 64. Make a note of it, but just listen to me read it. This is when Jesus is being interrogated. This is before his crucifixion. He's before the high priest. The high priest says to him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so. And I tell you, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now again, every one of us here, I bet, believes that Matthew 26, 64 is a reference to the second coming of Christ. It isn't. It takes up the language of Daniel 7. And the high priest and anybody else whose eyes were opened on the day of the ascension would have seen the cloud of glory taking up Jesus where he was enthroned at the right hand of the power. This is a reference not to his second coming. It is a reference to his enthronement and the beginning of his prosecution of his purpose. Don't we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus took his seat at the right hand of the power. He came on the clouds of glory and he began the prosecution of his purpose the purpose of bringing the realities of his kingdom to real expression in the midst of the earth. What is he doing? Ruling, reigning, subduing his enemies, and gathering the nations to himself. And the day's going to come when the veil falls and he finishes what he started. That's what you're a part of. That is what you are a part of. That is what we are a part of. This church here in Indian River County, that's what we're a part of when I go to Tanzania. That's what we're a part of when we support the Mahans in London. That's what we're a part of when we give our money to Westminster Theological Seminary, training a whole bunch of international students who will go back to their countries to participate in what Jesus is doing, the prosecuting of His purpose. Ruling, reigning, subduing his enemies, and gathering the nations to himself. So where's Jesus? Just across the veil. Just across the veil, folks. Just across the veil. Sinclair Ferguson says wonderfully, says, sometimes at communion, sometimes in preaching, sometimes when praying, the veil grows very Very thin. But he's just across the veil. And what is he doing? Ruling, reigning, subduing, and gathering the nations that among them he might express his everlasting dominion. And what difference does it make for us? A lot. (laughs) A lot. This is our true citizenship. This is our true hope. This is our true purpose. This is what gives meaning and dignity and significance to our lives as the nation of God, the people of God. Where is Jesus? Say it with me. Just across the veil. What is he doing? Ruling and reigning and subduing his enemies and gathering the nations. And I'll let you to think for yourself about the difference that it makes for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, capture our hearts with this. Gather us up into this great purpose that you, Father, have for your Son, Jesus, that he might be exalted in all the earth. What a glorious thing it is that you have poured out your Spirit upon your church, bringing the very presence of yourself into our midst to empower, to enable, to strengthen, to encourage us as we participate with you in the extension of this glorious kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. Oh, Father, this is fun. Thank you for the privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.